really think that there's probably only one. <laughs> I, I'll be controversial and say, I don't think that Solomon wrote this psalm. Uh, and I'll give my reasons for that uh, as we go along. But, but one thing that came to my mind as I thought about royal psalms is the, the fact that it's hard to have a royal psalm without a what? It's hard to have a royal anything without a what? A king, right? And when we think about kings, especially in the biblical sense, there, there's this mixed history of, of kings in the Bible uh, as we think about their position in Israel. Uh, a lot of times you will hear people say something to the effect of, well, the only reason that Israel ever had a king is because they would, went against God and asked for a king when God never intended them to have one. And I think that comes from a good place and a good understanding. Uh, we could look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 through 5. Uh, do you have these verses, Ben? Okay, I didn't know if you did or not. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 through 5, we see the situation that says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And it goes on, God tells Samuel in verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So we see here that the, the people, their desire for a king, why did they want a king? To be like everybody else, right? To be like everybody else. It was a desire for uniformity. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament history, that flies in the face of every ounce of God's mission for the people of Israel. Their entire identity was set in the fact that they were what? Separate, holy God's people, right? They're not supposed to be like everyone else. They're supposed to be like really no one else. They're supposed to be like God, which is something you couldn't say of any other nation. How many guys does it take to run the PowerPoint for one Titus Anderson Wednesday night Bible class? <laughs> Let's, we'll keep three so far, but let's keep going, right? Let's keep going. There's always room for more on the band. Um, but as we see here, we see again that the people wanted a king for the wrong reason. But I do think that we should keep in mind that there was an actual problem happening, right? Go back to verse 3 in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Talking about Samuel, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Now, Samuel was the judge over Israel. He was the de facto spiritual, and I would even argue to an extent, political leader over the people of Israel. Well, the people are looking at his sons and seeing what? Anything good? Corruption, right? corruption after corruption, and they see that, and they say there is a leadership problem in Israel, right? Now, the ironic thing is you remember that Samuel was brought in into the tabernacle to work uh, under God, but specifically under what man? Who did Samuel work under? Eli. What was Eli's Achilles heel when it came to his life and service to God? He couldn't control his sons, right? And isn't it ironic, again, and I don't say this to say, I think it's way too easy to look at people in the Bible and point a finger and say, well, why didn't they just get it right? It's hard. It's hard to raise faithful children. 
right? And you would think, well, Samuel, if anybody, who God hand delivered the message to him, you tell Eli it's on account of your sons. They're sleeping in the entrance of the tabernacle with women, with the women that serve, and I'm going to remove you from this position because of their sin. Samuel's the one that delivered that message, and yet his sons also are corrupt. So what we see is, yes, the people asked for something for the wrong reason, but there was a legitimate problem. If we look in the book of Judges chapter 21, this phrase, the very last thing said in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Question, do you think that's a positive statement or a negative statement? It's a negative statement, dead out, right? It says there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which means essentially who is the king? Who's the king in my house? Me, right? I choose what's right. I choose what's best. And we live in a democratic republic, right? We live, again, in a place where that, that sounds pretty good to us. We kind of built our whole identity on not having a king, right? But at least in this context, we see that not having a king was being detrimental to these people. There was no leadership. Now, again, you, you had judges that came in and were good spiritual leaders. Samuel was a good spiritual leader, and yet we see this, this issue that as he's getting older, his sons are coming up, and there is uh, this power vacuum. Now, could God have taken care of that without getting Saul on the throne? Yes, he could have. But here's what I think. Especially when we look at the Psalms, the royal Psalms like we're talking about, you will find so many that are positive about kings. Blessed be the king. The king is righteous. The king is on his throne. And what I think if we look a little bit farther back in the Bible is Israel did not you know, spring one on God when it came to a king. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 and 15. Note what God says here. When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So pause right there. Does God know exactly what's going to happen? Yes. When is, when is Moses saying this? Have they gone over into the land yet? They haven't even gone over into the land, and they already know this. God already knows this. But note what he says. Note that God doesn't say, you shall not have a king. I will not allow you to have one. Note what he says. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And note what he goes on to say. I, I think this is fascinating. Uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. Uh, starting in verse 18 there. Imagine if every public official had to do this with the word of God. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or the left and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Imagine if an elected official's first job was if a Bible was popped down in front of them, the New Testament, they said, okay, copy every word, and we're going to check it. We're going to check it based off of, a, of an accurate copy, and you're going to keep it with you at all times. You're going to read it and meditate on it day and night. Imagine the difference that would make with an elected official, right? Do you think David followed through with this? David, a man after God's own heart. David, who knew the law of Moses, who loved the Bible. Do you think he had a copy of the law? 
I think he absolutely did, right? It doesn't say, and thus David made a copy, but based on this, and, and read the Psalms. What is David constantly saying about God's word? It's just the most precious thing in his life, right? He meditates on it day and night. And so, again, what I think we see is the issue was not having a king, okay? And th this is my statement. The issue in Israel was not having a king, the issue is, are you going to wait for God to give you a godly king, or are you going to go ahead and grasp what you want before it's time to have it? When you think about sin in a large, in a large uh, number of cases, most of the time sin is not necessarily about something that's always bad all the time. It's about taking something that can be good and doing what with it? Taking it outside of its confines, right? What is gluttony? Is food sinful? No, right? But the Bible does warn about gluttony in that there's a time and place where our appetite becomes master over us, right? I'm not trying to be crude here, but what about sex and sexuality? Sex evil? The marriage bed is undefiled, right? What, when is it wrong? We take it outside that context. Now, let me ask you this one, and this one, I, I don't want to be too controversial again, but let me just ask you this. Is it a good thing to be able to discern between good and evil? Yes or no? Good to be able to discern between good and evil? It is. What was God's very first rule for Adam and Eve? What tree can't they eat of? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you think, now this is just speculation, do you think as God wanted, and God knew what was going to happen, Okay, God knew exactly what was going to happen before he did it. But if Adam and Eve were going to mature up and eventually live eternally with God, do you think eventually, again, it's a sinless world, but would they have increased in knowledge and wisdom? Or would they have just known what they knew on the first day? I think they were pretty smart, but I think they would have learned some more, right? And I think, again, Adam should have already, you can say, well, there wasn't sin in the world. Well, there was a serpent in the garden. Do you think Adam should have been able to perceive between the goodness of what God said and the evil of what the serpent was saying? The text seems to imply that he was standing right there when the serpent was talking to Eve. My thought is that God would have given Adam and Eve the wisdom they needed, but what did they do? They reached out and took it on their own terms. Now, I, that again is speculation. I can give you one that's a little bit more concrete. Look in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. I think this is fascinating. Cain is not what we would call a sterling example of godliness in the Bible, right? He's really the first bad human in the Bible that we read of. But note it says, when Cain is, is banished from Eden, it says, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now note the first thing that, that Cain emancipated from God's presence. What's the first thing that he does? He has, you know, his wife has a son named Enoch, and then what does he do? Very first thing that he does, he builds a city. Now, that's fascinating in and of itself, right, that we think of these people as primitive. The first thing he does is build a city. It doesn't say a couple of huts. It said he built a city. These people lived to be 900 years old. He built a city, and he called the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And you say, well, he was the bad guy. Obviously, building the city is not what he was supposed to be doing. He was supposed to be worshiping God in the garden. But note Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 16. This is interesting. 
But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a what? City for them. God's ultimate plan in the universe is to, name, to build a city and name it after who? Well, God, but more specifically, his son. God's plan in, in the entirety of existence is the very first thing that Cain did when he left the presence of God, when he left following God, the first human to rebel against God to the point where he was separated from him completely. Same thing. Build a city named after your son, right? Is there something wrong with building a city and naming it after your son? That's God's whole plan, right? What's the difference? Are you going to build the city or are you going to let God build the city, right? That's what it's all about. And so I say that to say I don't think that having a king was Israel's problem. I think the problem was God was going to give them a righteous king, but they wanted a king in their own image first, right? What was Saul? He was tall. He was handsome. He looked like he could win a battle. What did David look like when Samuel first went to look at the sons of Jesse? Small, right? Not him. I know, I know it's not that one. No, it's that one, right? God doesn't judge the appearance. He judges the heart, right? There was a righteous man in Israel who was young, but he was ready to be the righteous king that God wanted. And so again, I think the matter of a king is, are you going to have the king you want or the king that God wants for you to have, right? That's the kind of king that David was in large part and Solomon was to an extent. Um, and, and I think that's why we can, we can understand Psalms like Psalm 21, verse 1 through 3. Look at this earlier Psalm Ronald's already gone over. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. He has, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. Now, if the Psalms are inspired, and I don't think anybody in this room wants to argue the Psalms aren't inspired, and they speak this positively about the king, Right, And we know in the immediate context, the people that heard this would be thinking of David or Solomon in this context. Do you think it's possible that God could have totally 100% negative feelings about the office of king? I don't think so. Go on to Psalm uh, 45. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. Now, we could cheat and say, of course, it's talking about a good king because it's really talking about who at the end of the day. Not David, not Solomon. Who's the real king that's coming? Jesus. So we could cheat and say, well, yeah, God doesn't like any of these kings really, but he's talking about Jesus. I just don't buy that. I think the people that heard this in this context would have immediately thought, it's talking about the righteous King David. People knew David was righteous. It's talking about the righteous Solomon. In his young days, people knew Solomon was righteous. And so, again, I think that God really did, through these inspired texts, show up and say, a king can be righteous. And, and I think there's a, there's a thought process we have, especially in our day of politicians, where there can't be a righteous politician. If you're a politician, you know, politicians and lawyers, right? And a lot of lawyers become politicians, right? There, there's no way to be a good one. I just don't buy that. I think you could be a righteous whatever you are, right? 
depending on what the job is. There's, okay, let me change that. Now I'm rethinking this. There's some things you can't have that job and be righteous, right? But I think politician and lawyer does not have to be the case, right? Those are things that you can do righteously. You can do honorably. You can do justly. And I think that it was possible to be a righteous king as we understand it in the Psalms in the Bible. But let's move on. We've not really touched much on the Psalm at hand. Something interesting about this Psalm is that it is the final Psalm in the second book of the Psalms. Now, you may say, again, Psalms is a book of the Bible, but there's this interior division of the Psalms into these five books. And if we look in Psalm uh, 72, verse 18 and 19, all of the Psalms that end the books of the Psalms. So there's a division at, a, at Psalm 41, for instance. We'll get to that one in just a minute. But we see at the end here, the end of the Psalm, almost unrelated to the rest of it. It just breaks in and says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. How often do you hear that? Amen and amen. The double amen, right? And amen, something so good you got to amen it twice, right? At the end of these books of the Psalms, almost all of them end with just a doxology. Now, that's not a word we throw around a lot. I know Brother Bill knows doxology, probably the song. Uh, what's the other, what is the, the title of that psalm otherwise? Uh, pray, praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? Just a, a, a song of worship pouring out to God. And they all end with something like this. Psalm 41, which is the end of the first book of the Psalms, ends with this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now, you go all the way to the end of the Psalms, and you get to Psalm 46, and you've got five whole chapters of just this doxology stuff, right? The fifth book of the Psalms ends with five whole chapters of just praising God, right? And what's amazing to me, if you go to Psalm 148, verse 1 through 3, this comes right in the middle. See if this sounds familiar. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Does that sound familiar at all? Right? Uh, uh, it's uh, um, hallelujah, praise Jehovah for his name. Uh, uh, all, all the heavens praise his name. Praise Jehovah in the highest. All his angels praise, proclaim all his hosts together praise him, sun and moon and stars on high. Go to the next one, Ben. Uh, praise him, you heaven of heavens, and ye floods above the sky. Let them praises give Jehovah. Uh, they were made at his command. Them forever he established. His decree shall ever stand. You go down here and you see what? We sing this psalm all the time, right? Uh, that's what it comes from. And so, again, th these end-of-book psalms always end with just immaculate praise to God and we see that at the end of this but maybe the most interesting thing beyond that is and I'm going to skip one Ben look at the very last verse of Psalm 72 after we have this doxology it says the prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended that's weird you may not think it's weird. I think it's really weird, okay? This is the second book of the Psalms. Now, at the end of the second book of the Psalms, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Is that the last psalm that David has that shows up in the book of Psalms? Take a wild guess. No, it's not. There's more psalms. Psalm 86 is a psalm of David, a prayer of David. It says so. And so why is this here? 
Why at the end of book two of the Psalms does it have this thing that says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended? I have a theory. I don't have an answer, but I have a theory for you. Let's go back now to the first two verses of the psalm and ask the question again, who is this psalm for? The, the, the heading in my Bible says, of Solomon. Yours may say, a psalm of Solomon. Does anybody have, what does the New King James say as the heading? Somebody just throw it out there. You got it. Psalm 72. Or it's okay if you don't have it. But I was just going to ask. What does it say? A song of Solomon. Okay, so that seems to imply that who wrote it? Solomon, right? That seems to imply who wrote it. But notice what it says here. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Now, the, the person singing here seems to be talking not only about the king. He says, give the king your judgments, O God, but give your righteousness to who? To the king's son. Right Now, in the context of the Psalms, Psalms being a Davidic-centric book, it's easy to kind of slot and say, okay, Solomon could have written this, but man, if this song is about Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, that is just a downer. Right? Rehoboam is a sorry king. He was not good in the least. If Solomon was on the fence, he was just straight up bad. I think it's a lot more likely that this song was written by David looking to the future about God blessing who? His son, Solomon, right? Now, the reason that can work is that the Hebrew, the original Hebrew heading here, of Solomon, can mean of Solomon, by Solomon, for Solomon, okay? That's why everything I see here and several scholars tend to think, yeah, this very well could be written by David, for Solomon, which is a shame because that means we take away one of the only two that we think Solomon wrote in the book of Psalms, right? But it does make sense. It would make sense. And that would give a little bit more context to verse 20 of chapter 72, right? The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, right? In this psalm, who is saying this prayer? Possibly David, right? But it goes even beyond just the fact that David is, is saying this and he's happy. Go, go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember that David, David's the second king in Israel, right? The first king was who? We've already said. Who's the first king of Israel? Saul. I heard somebody say it very quietly. Saul was the first king of Israel. The way monarchies usually work is when the king dies, who takes the throne? His son. That's, 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 the monarchy is built on that idea, okay? Well, what happened to Saul and his sons? They were killed. Right, they were done away with. And beyond that, God had already anointed and said, no, we're starting over. And that's really what you have to think about. You can't think of the Israeli dynasty going Saul, David, Solomon. It's like God looked at the Saul part and said, we're starting over. Right? We're, we're not going to do, do a son of Saul. Saul had living descendants. You can read about him, Mephibosheth. It's a wonderful story. But they didn't take the throne. David took the throne. We're starting over with him. And so David's coming into a, a position where there have been no second-term kings, okay? There have been no two-king dynasties. And so David sees what happens to Saul. And what do you think is on David's mind about his dynasty? What do you think his hope was? 
I hope that my son can sit on the throne and I don't end up dying with my son because of my sin and God has to put another person on the throne. But note what God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David was assured by God that his dynasty would not end with him. Okay? That his dynasty would not end with him. And... If David wrote Psalm 72 about Solomon, not about some ethereal, well, maybe one of my sons will be king, but if he was looking at Solomon and said, that's my boy, he's going to be king, do you think that Solomon sitting on the throne is an answered prayer? Yeah, it's an answered prayer, right? And this 72nd Psalm is more than just, you know, as Ronald's talked about, well, David wrote this when he was on the run from Saul. David wrote this when he's on the run from Absalom. Isn't it only fitting that David gets to write a song when he sees his son who's going to take the throne and say, yep, God answered my prayer. Now the dynasty continues, right? Is that fair? Is it fair for him to write a positive song about that? I think that it is, and I think that's what makes sense of the end of this chapter and what it means. But we've talked enough about that. Let's start now, Ben. If you just want to go a verse at a time, that, that's perfect right there. We're going to go through uh, the psalm and talk about these different sections and what they're really talking about. What do they say about the king? We said it's probably by David about Solomon. The king is somebody that can be uh, on a righteous person. They can do God's will. Well, what does it say here? Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The main thing that we want, I would hope, from government is justice, right? Now, that's not true for all people. Some people want what from government? Whatever they can get, right? For as little as possible, okay? What, I put nothing in, I get the maximum return out. But really, for a righteous people, the hope of any government should be for justice, right? That the right thing would happen, that truth would be carried out, and that it was fair. Now, the problem with that is all governments are made up of what? Don't say snakes. They're made up of humans, right? And humans are prone to sin, okay? So we have that issue, but this is what we want from governments. And this says this king is going to judge with righteousness and the poor with justice. Now, again, this comes back to even something that comes up in James in the New Testament, which is the human inclination to look at the poor and say, I want nothing to do with them, right? God bless you, be on your way. I kind of want you out of my sight. You can sit on the back row. He says he's not going to look down on the poor. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. Now this picture of this king is that he is a provider. He's providing. He's judging righteously. But it's not just that he's a Mr. Rogers nice guy, right? Because it says there that he will destroy and crush and tear to pieces the oppressor, right? Those that are evil, those that want to go against God's people, he's going to take care of them too. He's going to destroy them. But otherwise, he's going to be a provider for the people. Go back. To the, the, thank you, Ben. What I think we... Oh, no. The other one. I didn't see that you had gone back to it. And yeah, I'm asking you for something you've already did. Thank you. 
what we see here is a king that will save the people that cannot save themselves. Okay, when you look at the poor, the needy, the children of the needy, these are people that of their own power have no sway in the world. You know, it's amazing that in our country, really, in, in some ways we feel like we have no pull, and in other ways we have way more control over our lives than most people in the world do, right? We can change the air conditioner number. We can change the temperature in our house. How many people in the world can do that? Not a lot. We take it for granted, right? We say, well, whatever. It doesn't get as hot as I'd like it to or as cold as I'd like it to. There's some people that they don't even know what that is, right? And, and again, in their circumstance, they have no, uh, n- no control over, well, I think I may go to college and get into this. My dad did this, but I think I'm going to do this. Is that the way it works in most of the, the world? No. What are you going to do? What your daddy did. If he had something to do. If he didn't have anything to do, I guess you're not going to do anything. You're not going to have any food, right? Good luck making it to 18. You're going to starve to death. We have a lot of control, but there's people out there that cannot help themselves. And again, this goes hand in hand with what Brother John's been doing in the Beatitudes, because spiritually, who can help themselves? Nobody. Nobody can help themselves spiritually. Ultimately, right, you can say, well, I can read my Bible every day, and I can pray, and I can do this, and I can do good things, and I can be righteous. Can you do any of that without God? You wouldn't have a Bible to read. You'd have nobody to pray to. You'd have no idea what works you ought to be doing. We can do nothing to help ourselves, right? So what this king is going to do for the kingdom not only applies physically, but also applies in a spiritual sense too, right? Let's go on to uh, verse 7. It says here, In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river, this would be the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. I didn't know there was a difference between Sheba and Seba. I couldn't point them out on a map to you, but I thought that was funny. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All the nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the, need, when the, needy, cry, the, the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. What we see here is a king that's not only going to provide for his people, but when it comes to comparing him and all the other nations, there's no contest, right? Every other nation is either his enemy and will be destroyed or is sending him tribute money, right? Now, Do we see that with King Solomon in the Bible? Pretty much. Solomon was pretty much king of the world. In fact, when we see the, it says the kings of Sheba, we don't often think of the king of Sheba, we think of who? The queen of Sheba, right? Who did the queen of Sheba come to visit? Solomon. And what did she say? I've not seen wisdom and and what was told to me, I, I hadn't even heard the half of it when it came to the riches and the wisdom. So in some sense, this does apply to Solomon, but I think we can all imagine as we're going to get to the end here that this is talking about something even greater. Let's go on to verse 13. It says, he will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight and he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. We see here a king that is going to spare those souls that are in need and that he's going to even redeem the lives of these people from the violent and oppressive lives that they have. As this gets farther in, 
it gets harder and harder to pin it just on Solomon. I think by now you should already be listening and thinking, this is harder than, to, than, than just to talk about Solomon with this. And in fact, uh, the New King James, uh, unlike the ESV, uh, it goes ahead and spoils it because all these he's in here are what? And daily he shall be praised. What do you notice about that he? It's capitalized, right? The person who translated the New King James looked at this and said, well, this is obviously ultimately talking about who? Jesus, right? We can already see the shades of that in this, but keep going even farther and it becomes even more apparent. It says, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who does only does wondrous things and blessed be his glorious name forever and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This is fascinating because... If the king is Solomon, and I think when this was written, it was written with Solomon in mind, then it, you know, it talks about Solomon and says his name's going to endure and all this stuff, and then it cuts into blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, kind of as a, as a, a cutaway. But what if the king is the Lord God? Well, then it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Then you go from saying, his name shall endure forever, he shall be blessed, the nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. What if the king is the God of Israel? That's only true with one person. That's Jesus Christ, right? And of course, it's in Jesus that the true meaning of this psalm comes out. Go to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Let no one fool you into thinking that we do not have a king today, right? We have a king if you're, if you're a Christian. And I'd argue even if you're not a Christian, there's a, there's a reigning king who you're going to have to answer to, right? And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The psalm when it says he's going to rule everywhere, everything's going to be his, every bit of land, all the nations are going to come to him. That fits the bill for Jesus, doesn't it? Because Jesus said, my kingdom knows no bounds. I have been given authority of, over all the earth and all of heaven. And thus he tells them to do what? Go, therefore, teach, baptize. And in fact, where did he say to go to? He says, baptize those in the nations, right? All the nations. What's he saying? All the nations belong to me now. I've got people there that I need to be in my kingdom. Go into all the nations. And that fits the bill for Psalm 72. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9 through 11. When we think about the glory of Jesus' name, he'll have a name that will be exalted forever. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ronald has talked a lot about vindication in the Psalms, and I agree with him. I think he's exactly right. That vindication is a, a godly thing if it's done according to justice. This right here is the most vindication that will ever happen in the history of the universe when every tongue says what? That guy that we crucified, he's Lord. How many tongues are going to say that on the last day? Everyone. The saint, the sinner, Adolf Hitler, Mahatma Gandhi, every tongue will say Jesus Christ is Lord. The judgment will be when they said it, right? Yes, Brother Bill. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, there's that day coming. The vindication is going to be Jesus will descend from the sky. The dead will come with him. The dead in Christ will rise first and all the rest will be raised from the dead. And can you imagine a worship service of the saint and the sinner all on bended knees saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you think Jesus deserves that vindication? After suffering on the cross? He deserves every bit of it. It's going to be a lot bigger than that day they put palm fronds in front of him going into Jerusalem. It's going to be a lot bigger than that. That's his vindication. Finally, and this is, again, this is, this is just a passage that gets me going. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. That verse doesn't get you going. I don't know what will. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. He's the King of kings. He's over every throne and every principality and power that exists out there. He's the Lord of lords. And he is gone where no one has gone before yet. But he's coming back for us too. So anyway, as we think about Psalm 72, think about not only the righteous kings that God set up and David and Solomon but the most righteous king. Because, of course, these things ultimately, as Jesus revealed the scriptures to them, showing them how everything in the law and the prophets and the Psalms was about him. And that's what we see in Psalm 72 as well. Thank you.